be seated. Text for the sermon this morning comes from Isaiah chapter 12. Isaiah chapter 12, and we will consider the first three verses this morning, we'll hear the last three verses this afternoon. This is God's holy, inspired, inerrant, and infallible word. Let us give our attention to it. And in that day you will say, O Lord, I will praise you. Though you were angry with me, your anger is turned away, and you comfort me. Behold, God is my salvation. I will trust and not be afraid, for Yah, the Lord, is my strength and song. He also has become my salvation. Therefore, with joy you will draw water from the wells of salvation." Water is essential for life to exist. Without water, there is no life as we know it. Water is so tied to life that when scientists look for life on other planets, they look for planets that have water. That's a common denominator that they will go and look for. And we all know that the human body needs water. Our bodies are made up of 75% water, and if we, lose just, if we lose just 4% of that makeup, we become dehydrated. And if we lose 15% of our body's water, we are in imminent danger of death. Well, you could survive about a month without food. If you don't have water for three days, you are going to die. So water is essential for life. That's one reason that Scripture often uses the imagery of water to speak of salvation. Especially for a more arid region like Israel, water would have been a daily consideration. They need to be constantly thinking about, okay, how are we going to get water? How are we going to get water for our crops? How are we going to get water for our own selves? How are we going to get water for our livestock? People needed to be sure that they had a ready supply of water. Unless the scriptural imagery of water with salvation. Without a saving relationship with the living God, with the God who created you, you are going to die in your sins. Just as if you do not have water, you are going to die. Those who do not trust in God alone, will experience a great spiritual drought and famine that will lead to death. Jeremiah 2, verse 13, we read of God charging Israel with two sins. But notice how these sins are described. They they are described in terms of water. We read in Jeremiah 2, 13, For my people have committed two evils, They have forsaken me, the fountain of living waters, and they have hewn themselves cisterns, broken cisterns that can hold no water. Israel, in seeking help apart from God, dug broken cisterns that yielded none of that life-giving water that was to be found in God alone. 
Yet notice from Jeremiah that God is that fountain of life-giving waters. God himself is the salvation of his people. God has provided a way of redemption for his people. Thus, our text in Isaiah 12 is true, that we can with joy draw from the wells of salvation, for God has provided us with salvation in himself. God himself is this life-giving fountain of water, ever-refreshing, never cold or, or stagnant like water in a cistern. And so we can partake of our God and, and his salvation with joy. And this morning we will be celebrating the Lord's Supper. And oftentimes I, I think we can really struggle with how, how are we to come to the Lord's table? We often come to the Lord's table with a feeling of, of the sorrow of our sin, mourning over our, our sinful nature, mourning over, over the fact that our sins put Jesus Christ on the cross. And, and yet, in a very real sense, we ought to partake of the Lord's Supper with, with a profound joy. Because our sins have indeed been paid for. We do it in remembrance of the sacrifice of Christ. And so I want to urge you, as we partake of the Lord's Supper this morning, that we partake of this well of salvation before us, that we partake of the, the bread and the cup with joy, even as Isaiah calls us to in verse 3 of our text. Therefore, with joy... You will draw water from the wells of salvation. But why should we do this with joy? Well, our text tells us why we can have such joy, and it is because we have a desperate, even a fatal thirst that has been satisfied. We read in verse 1 of our text, O Lord, I will praise you, though you were angry with me. Your anger is turned away, and you comfort me. Isaiah recognized the judgment and wrath of God that came against sin. He saw it as a burning anger that consumed the sinner. But that anger had been turned away. In order for you to appreciate the joy of salvation, the joy of your salvation, you need to see your sins as, as producing the judgment of a gnawing, fatal thirst that will ultimately lead to your death. In your lifetime, you will accrue countless numbers of sins, sins that are committed in your mind as you think lustful thoughts, as you inwardly curse people, as you cover the possessions and gifts that others have. You sin in your minds. You sin in your actions as well, as you break the Lord's day or cause bodily harm to yourself or others. You sin in your actions. But you also sin with your words. Sins that are, are committed in your words as you slander people. As you take the name of God in vain. As you gossip about others. And each one of those sins is like a salt tablet to already fatally dehydrated body. 
Every single one of these sins produces death. Even one of these sins will produce instant spiritual death. These actual sins we commit. And then we also have our our original sin, that sin in nature which condemns us in itself. The fires of hell. And so... We have these, this sin in nature. We have our sins of commission, but we also have our sins of omission. We're not just called not to sin, but we're also called to do rightly. To do what God has commanded. We're not just to be morally neutral creatures. We are to be positively righteous. Yet so often we fail, even on that front. So we are in desperate condition. And yet the response of of most people to their sins is to continue sinning. To keep heaping more and more death upon themselves. Like a crazy man dying of thirst, they guzzle down salt water. Or in the words of Jeremiah 2.13, they, they dig for themselves broken cisterns that will hold no water. Oftentimes, the, the pursuit of sin is, 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 is done. They think that, well, if I pursue this sin, well, maybe my thirst will be satisfied. Now, with, with sins that are more scandalous, say maybe alcoholism or marital infidelity... The, the unbeliever will, will deal with these sins. They'll deal with them in an outward sense. Many unregenerate people can clean up their life outwardly, yet they inwardly hide a heart that is in rebellion against God, a heart that hates God. Well, some might object there and say, well, oh, I, I don't hate God. Oh, I'm, 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 I'm rather neutral on the subject. I don't hate God and I don't love God. However, Scripture says that it is impossible to be neutral on the subject of God. It's impossible for you to be neutral with God. Jesus says in Matthew six twenty four, No one can serve two masters, for either he will hate the one and love the other, or else he will be loyal to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and mammon. So people pursue sin to deal with that thirst that their sin causes. And the problem isn't just that people are deceived by the allure of sin. They certainly are. Hebrews 3.13 speaks of, of that deceitfulness of sin. Sin is deceiving. Yet there are many who know the pain and hurt that their sin is putting them in. They're well aware of of the thirst that their sin causes them. They're well aware of of the guilt and shame that their sin produces. And yet they continue to pursue that sin. And that's because they have a heart that ultimately loves sin and hates God. And while they may move away from, from one sin, They ultimately exchange one sin for the next, getting rid of alcoholism. They take on the sin of of self-exaltation and and pride. 
They're changing the sins of sexual immorality. They take on the sins of, of covetousness, seeking the riches and pleasures of Egypt. Recognize the hurt that their sin causes, and yet they continue in this sin because they love sin. The imagery of Jeremiah 2, once again, they spend all this time digging broken cisterns that cannot even hold water, cannot even give the potential of life. And their heart problem is a heart condition that loves to be thirsty. Proverbs 8, 36 has these sobering words. But he who sins against me wrongs his own soul. All those who hate me love death. Man at rock bottom hates God and loves death. Man's problem is that he is so horrifically sinful that he loves death. This is true of you, and it's true of me, that apart from the grace of God, I love death. I love sin. We love the salty water that will not satisfy our fatal thirst, and yet, like a crazy person, we keep pursuing that salty water. Our heart condition is a condition that loves sin. And yet, beautifully and wonderfully, Isaiah says that God has dealt with our condition. He has dealt with our desperate thirst. He says, though you were angry with me, your anger is turned away and you comfort me. We need to be sure we understand here that God's anger doesn't simply disappear. doesn't simply vanish into thin air. And that's God's anger doesn't just simply vanish into thin air because God's character is perfect. His anger is tied to his holiness and righteousness. And so it's not an anger that's, that's petty or, or for trivial things. It's not an anger that, that's there one moment and, and then something changes and uh, something that makes God happy, say, and, uh, and then he's no longer angry. No, that, that's not God's anger. That is not our God. His anger is a perfect, unrelenting anger against sin. That's ultimately why our sins bear this judgment. Because God's anger is so perfect in righteousness. It's because it's so unrelenting. His burning wrath against mankind's moral failings is a perfect wrath. And because of that, God's wrath needs to be judicially satisfied. And so it can't just disappear. This is actually the astounding reality of what Isaiah is saying in our text. He says, though you were angry with me, your anger is turned away and you comfort me. Something has happened here in the text that God's anger was able to be turned away. Someone 
has pacified the burning wrath of God. Someone has taken away his anger. Someone has stepped between God and his people. And this very passage very implicitly then speaks of an atoning sacrifice. It speaks of the atoning sacrifice of a mediator. If there was no mediator, it would be impossible for God's anger to be turned away. There is a mediator who took upon himself the fatal thirst that our sins have caused. And he died giving us his life, giving us his body and blood so that we might live. He rose again, giving us the power of his resurrection life. And the only one this mediator could be in the context of Isaiah is the Messiah, is the Emmanuel, God with us. Isaiah 12 ends several chapters of the Emmanuel prophecy. This has to be the mediator that has turned away the wrath of God. has to be that son that was born of a virgin. That son who had the government rest upon his shoulders. The son who is God himself. See this in verse 2 of our text. Isaiah says, Behold, God, God is my salvation. I will trust and not be afraid, for Yah, the Lord, is my strength and son. He also has become my salvation. Notice those words, God is my salvation. God does not simply work out our salvation. God himself is our salvation. He does not simply orchestrate the circumstances of our salvation. No, he himself loves us to such a degree that he is our salvation. And here is this most beautiful evangelical paradox. God's anger burning against our sin. Yet God's love for us such that he would satisfy this anger through the mediator, the Lord Jesus Christ, God himself come in the flesh to procure salvation for his people. Such is great cause for joy this morning. Isaiah's response to considering that is to say, O Lord, I will praise I will rejoice in you. I will exalt your name. This gospel message means that your thirst can indeed be satisfied. It doesn't need to be partially satisfied by the fleeting pleasures of sin. It can be fully satisfied by the life-giving water of the gospel. Isaiah 12 verse 3 says that you will, you will draw water from the wells of salvation. Salvation is not just a possibility for those who would trust in this God. It's not just a, a, a possibility. There are sad numbers of people who are, are hoping they are saved. But salvation here is a surety for all of those who draw from these wells. You will draw waters. 
It's not just one of many options that work. No, this is the only way to be saved. And it is a fully efficacious and certain way. Those who trust in Jesus Christ, the mediator between God and man, will draw water, life-giving water from the wells of salvation. These wells of salvation, I believe, are, are the ordinary means of grace that God has given to his church. The reading of Scripture, prayer, corporate worship, preaching, singing the Psalms, the sacraments of baptism and the Lord's Supper, the benediction. These are these beautiful wells of salvation that God has given to His church. Such that the people of God can drink from and be fed and nourished in their souls. And aren't these the things, the means that we have even in our Christian experience, too, true joy. Think about those times where you have been in need of joy. Those times where you have mourned and been depressed and been anxious. Yet you've come to these means of grace. Have known full satisfaction. Known true and, and uh, true joy that supersedes all other earthly, carnal pleasures. These are these beautiful wells of salvation that God has given to His people. There are many types and shadows in the Old Testament. It was a period of shadows. One of those shadows was that rock that followed Israel through the wilderness. As Israel made its 40-year-long pilgrimage, from Egypt to the land of Canaan, during journeying through a barren and a dry land, they would regularly run out of water. They would get very thirsty. But God in His grace provided them with a rock. And from that rock came forth life-giving water. Paul tells us in 1 Corinthians 10 that that rock that followed them was Christ. We read, and all drank the same spiritual drink, for they drank of that spiritual rock that followed them. And that rock was Christ. Now you can imagine the joy that came upon the people of Israel when they tasted the, the refreshing water that came from that rock in the dry wilderness. Probably not that different from the joy that we have after working all day in the hot Oklahoma sun and then being given a cool glass of, of refreshing water. Israel was joyful to drink of that rock in the wilderness. And the same holds true of the people of God today. As they go through the various trials and difficulties that come in this life, when they grow weary, but when they come to, to that ordinary, those ordinary means of grace, when they come to a time of prayer, when they come to the preaching of the Word, when they come to the Lord's Supper, they come rejoicing. They come rejoicing because just as that rock that followed Israel was Christ. So when we come to the ordinary means of grace, we are encountering Jesus Christ through the gospel. And so our hearts can be glad. We can with joy draw from these wells for we Drawing from God Himself and the salvation He has offered freely to us in the gospel.
And notice that Isaiah doesn't just call it these streams. Streams dry up depending on the weather. There are many streams that we know of in Oklahoma that dry up in the summer heats. But Isaiah says these are wells. Wells that run deep. Wells that provide water, not just for a few days, not just even for a few years, but for generations. Just consider uh, what we read in John 4 of Jesus meeting this Samaritan woman at at the well that Jacob had dug some 2,000 years before. And it's still nourishing those people. Wells ever full of water. Ever provide water for people. This means this should encourage us. In a world that questions the relevance of the gospel. We know that the gospel is a well of salvation. That nourishes people generation after generation. Ever providing new life for those who would trust in Jesus Christ. And so... These wells of salvation that we have should bring us joy. When we pray, we ought to know the joy of the Lord. When we read Scripture, there should be joy. When we hear the Word preached, there should be joy. When we partake of the sacraments, there should be joy. Our text says, with joy you will draw water from the wells of salvation. And as I've said, ultimately our joy comes because we are partaking of Christ in these means of grace. Notice once again that the water in these wells is ultimately Christ himself. Isaiah 12, verse 2 says, Behold, God is my salvation. He has also become my salvation. Jesus himself is the water which we drink of from these wells. And this comes out, once again, in Jesus' words to the Samaritan woman in John 4. In John four thirteen through 14, we read, Jesus answered and said to her, Whoever drinks of this water will thirst again. But whoever drinks of the water that I shall give him will never thirst. But the water that I shall give him will become in him a fountain of water springing up into everlasting life. Whoever drinks of Christ, become in himself, not a parched, dry, dehydrated body, will become a fountain of water springing up unto everlasting life. Jesus himself is that living water, just as he is the bread of life and he gives his flesh and his blood to eat and drink, so Christ himself is the water of our salvation. And so with joy, we ought to partake of Christ. When we come to these means of grace, we ought to consider that we are partaking of Christ. In John 7, we read that Christ was in Jerusalem celebrating the Feast of Tabernacles. The Feast of Tabernacles would last an entire week and was one of the three Old Testament feasts that all the males uh, were to attend each year. Now, throughout the week, of because uh, the uh, Feast of Tabernacles lasted just a little over a week, throughout the week, sacrifices would be offered on each day. And 
And as you know, the, the festivities of this, sacrif- uh, of, of, of this feast were being conducted, uh, it was a time of national joy and rejoicing. Moses told Israel in Deuteronomy 16, 14, And you shall rejoice in your feast. You shall rejoice in, in, in your feast of the tab- feast of tabernacles, you and your son and your daughter, your male servant and your female servant, and the Levite, the stranger and the fatherless and the widow who are within your gates. This is a national time of, of celebration and joy. As part of this celebration, the people of Israel would, would come to Jerusalem and make tents like the ones Israel used uh, as they were traveling in the wilderness. Well, as I was saying, in, in John 7, Jesus is celebrating this feast. And in John seven thirty-seven through 38, Jesus says these words. On the last day, the great day of the feast, Jesus stood and cried out, saying, If anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. He who believes in me, as the scripture has said, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. History books tell us that the last day of this feast was the last day of the Feast of Tabernacles. This, this feast that was a time of joy and national celebration. It was a day of jubilation characterized by loud shouts of praise of God's people. It was also marked by a solemn event. On that last day, a priest would, with a golden vase from the temple, go down from the temple to the stream of Siloah, and he would put water in this golden vase from this stream. And as he's traveling down and traveling back up from, the, from this stream, the people of Israel are watching. They're singing the Hallel Psalms, the Psalms 113 through 118, which we've, we've been working through. He would take that water, then he would go up to the altar where the sacrifices had just been offered, then he would pour water on that altar. You children all know what happens when you put water on a fire. Put water on a fire, it puts the fire out. As the priest poured that water on that altar, it put the fire out, indicating that the sacrifices were done with. Indicating that there is no longer a need for sacrifices that day. All the animals, all the blood had been spilt, and it had all come to an end. And how the words of Isaiah 12, verse 3, must have resonated in the people of Israel's ears as they saw this. Waters of salvation had ended the need for those daily and monthly and yearly sacrifices. Because the atonement had been offered, their sins had been covered and some accounts of, some historical accounts of this, uh, of, of the last day of the Feast of Tabernacle, when the, when the priest would pour that water upon the altar, tell us that this was a day far superseding any joyous celebration ever. 
When the priest poured that water, the people erupted into praise, loud shouts of praise and rejoicing with God, such that one person said, whoever had not witnessed it had never seen rejoicing at all. Should that not be our case as we come to considering the salvation of our God? We have such an immense and wonderful salvation in Jesus Christ. Should not be the case with us. People who would observe us rejoicing in God would come away saying, I've never seen rejoicing like that before. There's something distinct and and wonderful about these people. They know true joy. And we do indeed know true joy for our sins have been covered. We have been given abundantly from God. Salvation. It was on that last day of the feast I'll just remind you of Jesus' words. If anyone thirsts, Let him come to me and drink. He who believes in me, as the scripture has said, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. The people of Israel knew that there was still a Messiah to come when they saw waters poured upon this sacrifice. They knew there was still something that God had to do to redeem them. Jesus says to them, it is me. I am the one who can put all these ceremonies to an end because I am going to die with that final sacrifice paying for your sins. And so put your trust in me. Put your hope in me. If anyone thirsts, if anyone sees his sins, if anyone's need of redemption. Let him come to Christ. And he who believes in Christ, as the Scriptures have said, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. As we come to the sacrament of the Lord's Supper, come recognizing that the price has been paid. Come recognizing that There's no longer a need for animal sacrifices. There's no longer a need for a Redeemer. For we have a Redeemer in Jesus Christ. And His body was broken just as we are going to break apart that bread. And His blood has been shed just as we drink from that cup. A testament to the fullness of our redemption. And so what joy should be ours this morning. What, with what joy we can come and, and drink from these wells of salvation that God has provided us. We can drink, not with sadness, not with mourning, but with joy, with happiness. It is a meal. It is a feast for us to partake of with joy. So let us heed Scripture this morning and let us with joy draw water from the wells of salvation. Let us pray.